Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep our history alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. Today we have something a little bit special for you here on Living Heritage. It's an interview that I did with Mr. Clarence Snook, originally of Hans Harbor. I sat down with him in June of 2019 at Admiral's Coast Retirement Center in Conception Bay South. Clarence Snook was born in Hans Harbor on Halloween Day in 1926. He was the son of Alfred and Hazel Snook, and he had no brothers and sisters. He was raised as an only child, and he went on to have an interesting career as a telegrapher and postmaster, and then later on working for most of his career in the telephone industry throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm going to start off with Mr. Snook himself, talking a little bit about growing up in Hans Harbor in the 20s and 30s. 30s, uh, well, I can certainly relate to the late 20s, and it was uh, very, um, very poor times then, like it was in everywhere in Newfoundland, and lots of um, serious illnesses. Of course, TB was, was rampant then, and Hans Arbor, of course, was, uh, wasn't, didn't escape uh, many cases over there, and that's that was the main thing, and we didn't do very much to um, for for professional. Um, you had to make your own farm. Well, the amount of two, I went to a, a two uh, two room school, and uh, there were two schools there at the time, two high schools, and I went to one of them, and uh, then I took some courses after that. So. And got me through till uh, I worked for 44 years in total. I went to work with uh, as the manager of the St. John's office of CNT when I left Hans Harbor. And I worked there for um, eight, ten years, whatever. And then the uh, uh, Newfoundland headquarters of uh, CNT, which became Terra Nova Tell, moved to Gander because that seemed to be. A more vibrant place of uh, the main reason for Terra Nova Tell's existence because they got into the subscriber telephone service in competition in a way to the Newfoundland telephone or Avalon telephone as they were. Uh, CNT, Terra Nova Tell served the more rural uh, areas of, of Newfoundland. Uh, um, the outports, so-called, and, well, the more rural areas, like along the south coast, and the northern peninsula was a classic uh, example, and into Labrador. And, uh, of course, that uh, that went on as uh, the years progressed. And I, uh, I managed the St. John's office of, uh, of C&T, which was largely a telegraph operation, and we had uh, 40 plus employees there then. And of course, the, gradually, technology usually phased, phased it out automatically, you know. When Clarence was still just a young man, he had started his career in telegraphy. A woman in Hans Harbor, Miss Melina Critch, had grown ill, and he filled in. For part of her, and that led to his career. Here's him talking again about those early days of telegraphy in Hans Harbor. 
the lady retired for illness, and uh, I had been interested in, in telegraph, in Morse telegraphy at the time, and I was training uh, through another um, uh, lady, uh, an ex-school teacher over there, who, who also was uh, a postmistress at one time, and she was proficient in Morse code. So I went through um, all one winter and uh, trained under her for the, the Morse telegraphy. So the following spring, the lady there whom you will see as Miss Melina Critch, she had been there for many years, and uh, her health broke down, and the uh, Secretary of Post and Telegraphs, who was the Newfoundland government at that time, uh, Call and wondered if I could uh, uh, struggle through with it, even though I was hadn't been uh, uh, officially in, uh, in in the office, but I was had been trained. So I said, "Well, I try to to get along with it," and uh, I did. And uh, I was there for eleven years, mm -hmm. just about eleven years. Uh, I just finished uh, high school. Uh, I suppose I was. Probably 18, yeah. And I had uh, trained in telegraphy independent of the post office that winter. I was attending classes for this lady who would, had, uh, I don't know where she came from, somewhere for out of the community. And I knew that she was uh, proficient in, uh, in telegraphy. And uh, by uh, arrangement uh, with her schedule, I used to go there nights, and uh, eventually um, I uh, became, I suppose, proficient in the, <laughs> in the Morse code. How, how quickly did you take to it? Uh, I was there all one winter, uh, you know, uh, spasmodically. I didn't go there uh, every night now, but uh, pretty well, I, I, I suppose. I'd, I'd be there two, two, three or four times a week, you know. And uh, it, it went over very well. She was she was good as a teacher. And uh, then, of course, I went over when Miss Critch, uh, she must have been there for, I'd say, 25 or 30 years. And uh, she was, uh, well, I would term almost, uh, and I've said so to her, uh, a Florence Nightingale of the community. She was... Those days, everybody weren't letter writers, and uh, if to somebody who couldn't uh, express themselves very well in a, in a letter, they'd go to Melina, Miss Melina, and ask her to write the letter. And she spent hours and weeks, I suppose, that uh, she never got paid for, and nor did she charge for. And she was just a. a an angel, that's the way to put it. And she was uh, just the, the nerve center of the community. Mm -hmm. And in uh, those days, there were, uh, the, the radios were, were few, there were only two uh, short, not shortwave, but longwave uh, radios in the community. And uh, she had, would have to take the, uh, the news so-called, and like uh, this time of the year when the sealing ships were out there, uh, and uh, the Imogene and the Kyle and the etc. and etc. 
they would report back and uh, she would uh, record us in long foolscap books and handwrite it, believe it or not, uh, out, and this was put out for the information of the public to go to the public side of the post office and read this. That was the news centre then, you know. <laughs> And, uh, so how long did that continue, that coming in to read the news in the post office? With my being there? Yeah. Well, I was there for 11 years, so yeah. just about it. There were two post offices, I understand, before that. The yeah. first one was uh, was burnt, and they improvised by going to the SUF Hall and so on. And then there was... Uh, uh, another that uh, in between all this, and then the uh, provincial government decided. Uh, I mean, it was the Newfoundland government, commissioner government then, uh, decided that they were going to build this little combination post office, uh, which also served the uh, telegraph operation of the communities down the shore: New Chelsea, New Melbourne. When I went there, I began to use the typewriter. There was no way I could sit down and spend hours, hours, hours and, and transcribing the Morse to uh, legible reading. So um, I began to use the typewriter there, and uh, that's the way it where I left. I left it uh, uh, in 1955. The post office building that Mr. Snook is describing is quite a small building and still stands in Hance Harbor today, though it's in need of a bit of restoration. The building was small, but it was divided into two sections. There was a, a section that was reserved for the station master and then a smaller area which became sort of a gathering place for the local public. It was uh, a one room which accommodated the Morse facilities there, with the, there were some attachments to it, like the power and, and, and so on, and uh, that was uh, in one corner, and then there was a, uh, an opening which also served as the, the mail center for the community of Hans Harbor, and uh, it had two wickets, and uh, only one of them used at that particular time. And uh, that's where the mail was sorted. And of course, there was every kind of mail coming there. I mean, as you will see, <laughs> the family fireside and the family herald and and uh, all that stuff, which was 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 free. You know, the, the barrel man was another one who used to come there. And uh, the mail bags were were stuffed, believe it or not, with this kind of thing. And uh, it was entertainment for the community because. Uh, you know, the, most people, they had no course of, of reading, listening to the radio. Uh, they had no radios on, except for a couple. And uh, that's, that's what they would uh, have to get their news from. That's where they came to get their news and where they uh, came if there was, uh, we, well, they, they leaned upon this pivotal spot uh, for um, news from the harbor, even. If somebody wanted their boat pulled ashore, uh, they'd leave word at the post office and say, uh, Uncle Joe is going to um, 
uh, had a schooner of beach on such as we look forward to you know your assistance and it was sort of a that's why I termed it the, the gathering place it was uh, it was a, a nerve center the best one we had you know there was a stove there um, a, a coal um, a coal stove a Dixie stove in my time and uh, each fall the government would arrange for um, uh, a supply of coal uh, and on the back you you asked uh, outside the wicket where the uh, people would come and get their mail and so on uh, there was a waiting room, uh, not as large as this, but two-thirds the size of it. And uh, also adjoining it was uh, a, a privy and uh, a place for storage of coal and things like that. And uh, that's where the winter's coal was, because we had no roads then even. Well, there were roads, but uh, they were always blocked, you know. And uh, that's where the winter's coal would be uh, stored. The, the government would arrange for a couple, couple of tons of coal. There was a waiting room which uh, accessed from the uh, road, uh, came up by railing, and it uh, came into the waiting room, which standing there could, I don't know, 20 people, I suppose, if needs be. And then there, there was a counter with an enclosure which separated from the public, from the private side of the office, where the postmaster or operator would do his or her thing. And uh, that's where they would, uh, the public would operate from. There was one door which accessed from the uh, public door was off the waiting room. Yeah. And it used to go into where the mail was handled and uh, the telegrams were copied and whatever. In the early days of Clarence's time at the post office, the mail came in by horse and buggy, and then later that was replaced with a pickup truck. The mail would come in by train to the Hearts Content station, and then it would come from Hearts Content to New Perlican, Winterton, Hans Harbor, all down the shore right to Sibley's Cove, which was the end of the line. It would come in in horse and slide in the wintertime. And around 1955 is uh, the time that Clarence left. That was when the old pickup trucks started to come in. I asked Clarence if he remembered who it was who delivered the mail. There was an old chap, uh, Jimmy Rowe, you know, from Heart's Content, used to, uh, uh, to drive this uh, buggy. Yeah. Uh, I'll call it pickup. But it wasn't it was one of these open cars, you know, uh, with, uh, had no roof on it, I don't think. But he'd load, load it up. And the, uh, the uh, horse and buggy, they were the family of Rose, uh, who successively uh, did the delivery by, by horse and slide in the wintertime. Yeah. And they would they'd go from, well, I suppose it'd be 25, 30 miles from Hearts Content to the end of the line, which was Brownsville. I'd say it was 20 miles anyway. And that was how the mail was delivered and picked up. 
And uh, I think it was three times a week in my time. I know it was two or three times a week. And uh, to be sorted and ready for the, if, if uh, I weren't there when he'd come through, he'd have a key and he'd come in and pick the mail up and the way to go. But there used to be some piles of, of this kind of, <laughs> it didn't generate much revenue, but uh, the old family fireside and so on. And uh, the other thing was, uh, Narnia was a big thing then. It was a big, big thing. And about the only um, means of the ladies of the community making a few dollars other than from the fishery. Uh, if, there was, if their husbands were involved in the fishery, then so were the women too. But uh, outside of that, uh, the, the women, uh, they were knitters and they would um, send the bales of wool out from Narnia and St. John, and then there would be a, a control lady in, in the community, and that happened, two or three different people operated in that role for quite some time, and then uh, when it was ready to go back, she would bundle it all up, come to the post office with it, and sometimes we'd have mailbags that big with the sweaters and <coughs> cuffs and mitts and all of the what. It was the only means that, uh, as I said, that uh, the ladies had of making five dollars, and that's what they used to get for a sweater. <laughs> and uh, it used to uh, go back to Lonely and St. John's and they'd display it in through a uh, outlet down Water Street and that's where I guess most of it was, was sold. They'd, they'd send in, uh, if, if they needed a certain type sweater, uh, they would send in wool enough for one, two, three, with the, with the pattern by the way. And, and some of these ladies were very articulate when it came to uh, interpreting the pattern and sometimes it will go into uh, the, the, be scrutinized in St. John's and say all that stuff about the one so to send it back out again and change the band on this and that and uh, it better work very well. People made a buck when between that and berry picking they didn't have much else to uh, to make a buck. Well the, the, the merchants there um, the, the chief collector, I said, would be S. Shorten Sons. Now, this goes back a little bit, predates that, but they had a truck and they would uh, uh, collect up a bunch of people uh, and they used to charge them, I think it was 10 cents, and they'd load them in the back of the truck and, and take them down to Old Perlican because Old Perlican Barons was pretty productive when it came to uh, berry hills and so on. So we'd take them down there, they'd pick their berries and process them, clean them and so on, put them in boxes, load them on the truck and bring them back. They used to charge them, I think, 10 cents for riding them down to Old Perlican. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting times they were. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other interesting times that Mr. Snook lived and worked through was the Second World War. 
He was still a young man at that time, and he was engaged by the RCAF as an aircraft spotter. His job was to keep an eye on the skies and to look out for strange aircraft and report it back further along the line. Here's Mr. Clarence Snook again, recalling his days as an aircraft spotter during the Second World War. Yes, it was, uh, that was late in, in the war when that came about, and I was the only uh, postmaster operator, I guess, in Hans Harbor that uh, was exposed to that. And I said when the, the Air Force came around, they wanted to, to know, uh, to be able to spot the, uh, as, as best you could, spot the type of aircraft. Was it a Liberator bomber or something? Now, you know, to a guy sitting on the ground in Hans Harbor, looking up, you know, identifying what kind of a bomber he was. But they, they gave a certain specifications, you know, the tail looks like so-and-so, and the wings are so-and-so. So if she's low enough that you can detect her, you call her so-and-so. And then uh, you have to pinpoint the... Uh, the direction that she was headed, if she was northwest or northeast or whatever, and then um, just preluding that, uh, they, they sent a, a crew out and uh, they put a, a, a telegraph line, hoot and holler line, from the old post office out around the harbor to my bedroom. Yeah, that one of these old crank type phones. Crank phones, yeah. And uh, they put a, a line right around the harbor for that purpose. And uh, anyway, they, um, uh, it, it was, uh, the, the idea was to report uh, any unusual uh, activities and so on. Th this line was put there uh, specifically, I think probably not more than a couple of years prior to the end of the war. What generated the interest in it, I don't know any more than they wanted somebody uh, to try and train themselves to be able to identify uh, flying objects and their direction. And if it happened on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night, I would have to go out and say that, uh, I don't know, I can't see the plane, but the lights are going, I saw west and so on. I'd have to go back to the post office and crank up those instruments and uh, get that through to Whitburn via, uh, to St. John's via Whitburn, who in turn would get it through to RCAF and they would make their judgment. Whether or not it was enemy or what, and by the time all this was happening, uh, the world would come to an end. Because you know, by the time I looked up and went to the <laughs> post office, I had no car at that time, so I walked to the post office and cranked this up and get this going and so on. <laughs> Send a message to Whitburn. He he'd be in bed probably. Get him out, and then uh, then he'd get the message to St. John's. So, you know, talk about uh, technology. So it was still there while, um, when I left, but I don't think it was uh, being used. Well, they wanted to know what 
even even friendly aircraft. Hmm. He wanted to know, you know, if uh, were they up to anything uh, that uh, they wanted to confirm. In other words, yes, yes. And uh, I suppose it was all right about what they were doing, but. Uh, this old crankshaft phone, by the time you got the, the message to her destination, I guarantee you the bomb would be down. And, uh, and, uh, but it, uh, it was there after I left, I think they dismantled the line and, yeah. and took out the phone. And so so that, was, uh, that was the aircraft, but they recognized it after the war was over. They sent me a a certificate for the, the service and so on. I don't know what happened to it, but sent me a little badge and and a certificate for participating in it, you know. And, and that was that. One of the other services that the post office provided was uh, as a spot for telegraphic money orders. It was also the spot where you could go and order and pay for goods that you would you would pick out of catalogs. And at the end of our interview, I, I asked Mr. Snook about that, that process, about um, taking money orders and placing things uh, on order through catalogs. Sears Roebuck, for example. I asked him what kinds of things would people buy, especially around Christmas time. Anything that could go in the mailbag, <laughs> you know. I, don't, I, don't, I suppose there were times when a, a, a Shetland pony didn't go in there, but uh, everything else. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, along came the Simpsons catalogs, and then came along the Eaton's catalogs. And this was uh, subsequent to um, Sears Roebuck. But there was, and then of course when the catalogs were coming in, those and other uh, people would, uh, you know, stay up all night to come to the post office to get their Eaton's catalog. Yes, they used to do a lot of their shopping like that, uh, as much as they could, financially, and they'd have uh, quite a few things coming in. And of course they'd get it in and they'd look at it and they'd say, oh, that's the wrong size, I didn't order that color. So just come in now. I'd have to, uh, you'd have to repost it back to Sears or Eaton's or wherever it came from. You've been listening to an interview with Mr. Clarence Snook, originally of Hans Harbor, Newfoundland. We recorded it in June 2019 at Admiral's Coast Retirement Center in Conception Bay South. And a special thank you to Mr. Clarence Snook for his uh, great stories and his wonderful, wonderful memory. I'm Dale Jarvis. Uh, Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Heritage. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail, and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.